Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special bonus episode for you Patreon subscribers here at 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie. I uh, am not joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg, this week because he is fantastic festing. So while he's right now watching Flash Gordon with everybody there at the Alamo Drafthouse, I am joined from New York by the one and only Jason Bailey, a, uh, a longtime online friend who uh, I'm excited to finally speak with tonight. Jason, thanks very much for being here, sir. Drew, thank you so much for having me, and it's such a such a pleasure to be on one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, thanks, man. Well, um, I am excited because uh, I one of the things that excites me about doing '80s all over is the notion of deep dive sort of film criticism, which I don't think there's enough of, and I think a lot of what you write is deep dive stuff where you get intrigued by an idea or a notion or a through line with stuff and. To me, that's some of the most exciting kind of um, archaeology that we do as film critics, because that's where you start to draw connections or see bodies of work or realize that an idea plays itself out. And right now, I know you're working on something about New York. Mm-hmm. To me, that is one of the most exciting things about that is watching the city change as one of the most filmed locations in the world. Yeah, no, big time. I mean, that was really what kind of drew me to it originally was the idea that I am of the opinion that every movie that's shot on location in New York is basically two movies. It's in the foreground is the narrative, the story that you're being told about these characters. And then in the background, it's a documentary about what New York was at that particular moment. Yep. Um, And so one of the pleasures, especially if you're someone who lives in New York or spends a lot of time in there, is going back and seeing like movies from the 70s and being like, oh, that intersection where they flipped that car and taking Apollo 123, there's a Starbucks there now, you know, and sort of situating the New York that you know with the New York that has been photographed so extensively throughout the city's history. Well, the 80s in particular, like I when I worked in New York, I worked there um, for a chunk of the 90s, the mid 90s, like 94, 95, right in that era. And it was as the city was changing from sort of that older, um, dangerous New York to the more cleaned up Disney version, or at least that was the image they were selling. And so I like I came in just at the tail. I got to see a little bit of Times Square, but not really. Times Square in its glory. And when I look at like 80s movies and they just run through Times Square, I want to stop it and step into it and just kind of turn and look in 360 degrees. And I love that, man. Yeah, I feel the same way. And, and you know, and the, the only problem with having this sort of obsession is that you find yourself watching movies and not paying attention to what's supposed to be happening because you're, you're like <laughs> You're squinting at street signs. You're like, are they at 56? That's where I used to work. You know, you, yep. you, you, you have to sort of be able to watch movies with two brains at the same time. Oh, I know my, you know, my girlfriend lived in Venice for many, many years and, um, we were watching Max Dugan returns recently and it was, uh, the neighborhood that she had lived in. So like, as we're watching her brain just could not stop taking apart the geography of what we're looking at and what that neighborhood looks like now. And, Oh my God, that's the place where we went to this thing. And it's crazy. Like I, but truly um, I think it's one of the valuable things about film that film does capture cultural snapshots, cultural moments and the eighties from end to end, I think is filled with massive change and sort of massive cultural shifts that we captured on film. And it's, it's why I believe 
it is so rich a conversation and so much deeper a conversation than just the 30 movies that everybody normally talks about. Exactly. I, I could not agree more. And as someone who, you know, I, I'm a, a tiny bit younger than you and Scott, but not much. Um, so you know, I was born in 75. So, you know, especially like the, the period that you're, you're right now getting to in the chronology of the podcast is really when I started being aware of movies and sort of turning into a movie geek and, and reading listings and reading reviews and seeing things as they came out on tape. And that really was what was so glorious about that early video store era was the, you know, the democratization of the video store shelf and the fact that you could see things that were maybe a little offbeat, that were a little obscure, that had something different to say, even in a, a, a period that really was sort of dominated by these sort of slick, big studio films. Yeah, I, I think that is the, one of the exciting things about the 80s is that shift from the, um, the late 70s sort of uh, very auteur-driven, at least the notion of the auteur-driven dri- film, and then watching those guys struggle to redefine themselves over like it's hard for me to believe that there was a period where Scorsese struggled to even figure out where he fit in our business. But we're hitting that era right now. And it's I get it. Like, where would you fit if you were him? And suddenly everything was driven by this sudden push towards the mall and the the suburban dollar and that rush to hit that gold rush moment of, oh my God, we can make a hundred million dollars with a movie. Yeah. Um, so as a littler kid than me, I I'm curious, um, especially for people who do what we do, who did you read first? Who were some of the people that you read early on? Um, and, and what, what led you to reading about movies? Because I think there's two different kinds of film fandom. When we're young, there's the stuff we're watching and there's also the other media that we're ingesting and how we choose to do that. Sure. The, I mean, I started out as I think a lot of people around my age did by watching Siskel and Ebert. Um, they were, you know, it's not unique, but they were very much the gateway into film criticism for me. And I was watching them from when I was like absurdly young. Like I was watching them when they were on PBS. I was watching sneak previews at like seven years old before I really even understood what film criticism was or who these guys were. Um, and so I followed them through the, the, the different television series. Um, the first one I ever really read was, my local, I'm from Wichita, Kansas. And so I read the, the, the local, the hometown paper critic who was not very good, but it was at least seeing in print. Oh, this is, this is what this is. You write 700 words about this movie and why it's good or why it's bad. Um, I think the first critic I was actively reading was Ebert. Um, not through, I didn't have access to the Chicago sun times or anything, but my birthday's in November and starting with, I want to say like my 12th birthday, I asked for the movie yearbook every year. Um, Oh, nice. Okay. Or, or the movie home companion as it was originally called. But, uh, every year that was my number one birthday, uh, request was to get that year's edition because it always came out right around late October, early November. My, my, my birthday's November 14th. So I got that every year and would sit and like read it like a novel, like read it cover to cover. Um, you know, as I had it for a few editions, I'd start to skip, you know, the ones that were, 
uh, that were in their uh, regulars. But it that that was such a huge component in terms of not just learning how to write about movies and learning how to read about movies, but also in terms of forming taste, you know, that Rogers, yeah. Rogers ideas about, about movies were so, uh, he was so curious and so explorative. Um, but also like me, he was a Midwestern guy. So that, that sort of plain spoken approach that he had where he was just like, you know, your cool uncle who was over for family dinner telling you about this Francois Truffaut movie. I think you'd really like it. It's about making movies, you know, like that was so key to learning about movies and learning about writing movies. Um, yeah. Um, were there magazines that you got into as a kid uh, or once you started to get older? Were the, What was the first sort of film press uh, na- or like larger film press that you digested? Um, it sounds silly because it's so pop oriented, but honestly, it was Entertainment Weekly. Um, fair, I totally fair. I think for <laughs> a lot of people, that was the first real mainstream one. Exactly. Yeah. And like, again, I'm I'm of just the right age. Like I was, you know, I was 14 when they started publishing. I still remember like, you know, my total recall cover and my another 48 hours cover. Um, but that was that magazine's sort of, um, you know, all in approach to popular culture that everything was sort of worth at least considering uh, was was really key for me. Um, and also it was for a kid in Wichita, Kansas, the the fall movie preview, I remember being a huge deal for me as a teenager because, you know, it was, this was pre, you know, pre-internet, pre-every film site has a, a fall preview. So it was very, um, just getting a taste of, of what was coming, but also, you know, the fact that that really was a comprehensive fall movie preview and there were titles and filmmakers in there that I had never heard of that I would not have been aware of were it not for like that little paragraph you know, at the end of the November section of the uh, 1993 EW fall movie preview. One of, one of my big, I am a New Yorker now moments. I'll never forget this. We moved to New York in August, uh, late August, early September. And that night, like, you know, as we were unpacking, I ran down the street to the, to the riot aid as you do to get, you know, your toothpaste and whatever. And the, the, the entertainment weekly fall preview was on the newsstand at that riot aid. And I picked it up and I took it home. And I, I remember sitting in bed with my wife, reading that thing cover to cover and realizing about halfway through, holy crap, I can see all of these movies on the day they come out now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that was that is a thing that uh, they do far less of now in terms of the advertising. But it used to be a knife in my heart when a TV commercial would come on for a movie. I would go, oh, my God, the commercial would get to the end and they go in limited release this Friday. And I'd be like, oh, no, in select cities this Friday. Oh, and it's not like, a select city and I know it. <laughs> Wichita was never a select city, Drew. It <laughs> never, ever was. We were never yeah. selected. Yeah, um, uh, that is that uh, the closest I lived to a select city was when I was in Chattanooga and Atlanta would get things sometimes. And uh, we would drive down specifically to see things. That's where I saw Stranger Than Paradise um, because it was not in uh, not not where I lived. So 
All right. Well, listen, uh, one of the things that we do is we have guests on and we ask them to bring with them lists of movies that are not the the accepted canon. Because, yes, uh, we're about to do our June 84 episode and we're going to talk about Ghostbusters and Gremlins. And there will be plenty to say, I'm sure. But I'm more excited that month that we finally get to do the Pope of Greenwich Village. So it's that to me is the thing that makes this so much fun is when we get to those months where, you know, yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the, the five or six things that you absolutely know. And Birdie also came out that month. So let's do Birdie. Um, that is what is getting me through some of these truly insane months we're doing right now um, is knowing we got the little gems coming. So I want to know and I love that we don't ask the guests to tell us ahead of time. We just do it on the air. So hit me with your first one, Jason. What's your first 80s gem? Let's start with one that ties into the run-up conversation in that it is both a great New York movie and a movie from Scorsese's kind of wilderness period. And that is After Hours from 1985. Uh, A terrific uh, sort of uh, wind-up, go-all-night New York is terrifying. Uh, Tribeca, Soho, downtown New York, dark comedy starring Griffin Dunn and, you know, Roseanne Arquette and uh, John Hurd and just a, a terrific ensemble cast. And Cheech and Chong, one of Cheech and Chong's only Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, isn't that an amazing crossover? The fact that they can say that they were directed by him. And uh, and mean it. Um, when I when I was working in New York, one of the nights that I was there, the the company that we were working for wanted us to the wanted us to experience New York as a series of strata, as a, a city that has uh, this face that it shows you, and this face that it shows you, and this face. And so one night, uh, the people that we worked for set it up so that we had some security with us. And they they sent us on a tour of the city that progressively got skeezier over the course of the night where it like started at a club that anybody could get to. We went to the limelight at one point. Um, we ended up at the vault for a little while. Things started to get much darker and weirder. The night ended at an after hours bar that got busted by the cops. It was truly an insane evening. And at the end of it, I all that I kept flashing on was after hours. And the fact that that city is unique in the way it can offer you that experience where you can cross into a different world by going around this corner and being in this neighborhood and then five blocks over and two blocks up. It's a different planet. And and it just depends on what time of night it is. And it depends on what else is happening and letting out. And I I think there are very few films that capture that quite as well. And I didn't know it for a decade after I saw After Hours, but it was one of those things where at the end of that night, I just went, oh, oh, that's an even better film than I read. Oh, wow. Okay. I get it. It really can feel like this. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No, it's it really grabs something uh, sort of unique and scary about the city and about what New York movies were at that particular moment. Because one of the things I I really get into in the book is the, uh, you know, there are there are movements of New York cinema, uh, particularly when New York production really took off in the in the mid '60s, um, because it was it was a a boom in production that was near simultaneous with the city going into the toilet, um, 
And ironically enough, uh, a boom in production that was enabled by the city, that was part of the establishment of the mayor's office of, of TV, film, and radio, uh, which made it exponentially easier to make movies. And so it was that much easier for people to document the city going into the toilet. It was a really, <laughs> it was a really unfortunate bit of timing. Um, so, you know, in you had sort of a period, there were like, you know, Initially, these kind of like, you know, earnest, gritty dramas, things like Midnight Cowboy and Panic in Needle Park uh, that, that were, you know, these sort of snapshots of the city decaying. And then there was a period in the sort of the early 70s of kind of dark comedies of desperation, things like, you know, Where's Papa and Little Murders and The Landlord that are, you know, that sort of find it funny that the city's dangerous now and that you can't cross Central Park at night. Um and then that gave way to the sort of more exploitative 70s uh, and early 80s, you know, things like Death Wish and uh, the Warriors that that really sort of push the idea that the city is really scary and dangerous. I, so, I want to see somebody mash up the out-of-towners with uh, Death Wish and see those two kind of combined. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then weirdly, in, a, in around the mid 80s, there was kind of those movies were so extreme. When you talk about things like The Exterminator and The Exterminator 2 and Maniac and stuff like that, those movies were so out there that really all they could do was sort of retreat to comedy. And so in the mid 80s, there's a real movement. And I think of After Hours as being sort of the quintessential one of these, but a, a movement of movies that are about New York. Isn't it wacky how New York is insane? Yeah. Um, so it's things like After Hours. It's things like Desperately Seeking Susan, uh, the back half of Crocodile Dundee, even Coming to America, I think, would fall into that realm. Um, but After Hours, I think, is the best of the bunch because it's, it is quirky and funny and insane. But there's also real darkness to it. There's real danger out there for him. Um, and it comes across in Griffin Dunn's performance and it really comes across in the kind of unsettling way that Scorsese moves the camera in this movie. Well, that's, and that's something that I, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for is there's a, there's a, an aggressive directorial style that kicks in with after hours that I think is, is president after hours and color of money. And it, that becomes more pronounced for him. But until then, it's a different Scorsese language wise. And I don't, and I'm fascinated by the energy, which is more Raimi esque. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of aggressive camera energy where things fly across rooms. I also feel like after hours is a great, great post AIDS movie where the anxiety about simply leaving your house to have human contact is if I leave my house with the intention of maybe taking my pants off, my world could end. That's 100% and, right. Yes. Man, does that film get the anxiety of, because he, uh, Rosanna Arquette, the scenes where he's in her apartment and the early scenes, and there's still a chance that maybe this night's going to be an interesting night. Maybe they, there's some connection. And the glimpses of scar tissue and the hints of things that maybe have got, my God, it just, there is so much that right away begins to be, become anxiety inducing. And then the film just finds ways to crank it up for him. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, 
and it is a horror movie energy. It is Ramey-esque. You're right. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but like the, the, the camera movements are so fast. They're so much faster than anything he was doing, except for maybe the stuff in the ring in Raging Bull. Right. Which, and that's, and it's that aggressive animal energy that feels like it suddenly spilled out into all of the way he's thinking about New York in this movie. Absolutely. And he's cutting on a moving camera, which is not something I think that he was doing a lot of before then. I'm thinking specifically of like that first diner scene there. They cut into that scene with the camera already in motion. It's like an impatience um, to the camera work in there that, yes, that recurs 100% in color of money and the stuff on the on the billiard table. And I think is, is really has sort of codified into into just his style by the time he gets to Goodfellas. Oh God, yeah. I'm and, and uh, I can't say enough about the impact Griffin Dunn had as a performer for me. Uh, and it's the one-two punch of American Werewolf and After Hours, and that that gap of a couple of years helped because you kind of he went away. Yep. And you're like, okay, I guess I guess Griffin Dunn that was sort of the one, and then he kills it in this. And the idea that that's really it as far as the substantial body of Griffin Dunn's work. There's a lot of Griffin, smaller Griffin Dunn performances, but those are the two like front and center. Oh my God performances. And he's phenomenal in both at, at embodying a guy who knows the world's going to shit on him. And he's right. He's not paranoid. He's right. It's going to. Yeah. Can I tell you what else, what other he's, it's not a good movie. I'm not going to make a case for the movie, but you know what else he's kind of great in? Hmm. Who's that girl? Believe me. Anybody, anybody who had to go up against her in that film at the at the height of her, aren't I adorable? Mm, no, you're not. And he I give him every bit of credit you can give an actor for standing his ground in that film because she's an unstoppable force that runs over him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's something else. Uh, I can't wait to get to that one, man. Um, all right, so uh, so after hours, I cannot concur heartily enough. And that was one that I remember taking my dad to see. And twenty minutes in, he leaned over to me and he goes, "I'm going to be an American Ninja. Catch me later." <laughs> so that's the only reason I know they came out at the same time is because my dad bailed to go see that. No after hours for him. Due to cough all the way, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we, uh, should, should I next one? Yeah. Let's, let's do the next one from 1988. Uh, the dramatic debut for one of the ubiquitous comic actors of the 1980s, uh, clean and sober starring Michael Keaton. Ooh, this was, this was the first Kathy Baker film that I really sat up and went, who the fuck is that? Yeah. Well, yeah, this was it was interesting because it was a re, it was it reunited her and Morgan Freeman. Uh, they had appeared together in Street Smart and then they yeah. both have supporting roles in this one. It it may have been the first movie I saw Morgan Freeman in because I was not quite old enough to see Street Smart when it came out. Um, and really, I was a little bit too young to see this. But if I may be a little bit personal, um, it is a, a, a drug and alcohol uh, recovery story. And my mom and the my stepdad at the time were both in recovery. They both met in recovery. Um, so they had heard about this movie when it was coming out. And when it came out on VHS, you know, we went to the video store and they were really uh, really interested in seeing it. And I wanted to see it because I liked Michael Keaton. He was, you know, the funny guy in, in Mr. Mom. Um, 
it still lays me out. It still, I think, is a devastating piece of work and a really terrific performance by him. Uh, for the first time, sort of harnessing his intensity at the service of a, a very serious piece of work, um, playing this, you know, this cokehead asshole um, who ducks into a a thirty day uh, drug and alcohol rehab program mostly to escape the cops because he's in he's in trouble for giving some prob- some bad coke to a girl who OD'd. I think if memory serves an underage girl who OD'd. Um, so it's very much a story of a guy who walks into this thing in complete denial um, and learns that he is addicted and, and that he has to work the steps and does. Um, this sort of template for the recovery drama has been fairly well worked uh, but this was one of the first films to really see it. And it really, it, it is, I remember my mom and stepdad at the time saying that it is very close to uh, to the program as they knew it. Um, it does get into a romance a little more quickly than is encouraged in yeah. uh, AANNA. But, uh, but that the portrait of, of, of making, of, of working the steps um, was really, really struck. One of the things that I found fascinating was that I was such a moonlighting fan. So while it is clearly the jump for Michael Keaton from what we thought of him to a, a more, uh, serious Michael Keaton, it was also a huge shift for Glenn Gordon Karen. And it was such a strange shift because I thought of him as a guy who, okay, if he makes the jump to movies, what we're going to get from him is going to be that kind of fast comedy that's sort of witty. And I think it was a real um, shock for people that went into it because of either the star or the writer director. And that was, um, and I think it it's definitely one of the things that, uh, works for the film in some ways. Uh, when you cast a guy like Michael Keaton at the height of his sort of manic energy and his, um, uh, him being the embodiment of that particular archetype, which, by the way, I want to write about. I believe there's a book in this archetype, the archetype of the asshole in the 80s, the white entitled, I'm going to kick a door open and walk in singing a song that I'm listening to on my Walkman, and everyone's going to find it adorable, even though it's the worst. I am the worst person. And But these guys were given to us as the sort of role models. And right now, when you look at, I don't mean to make everything overtly political here, but when you look at these Brett Kavanaugh uh, sort of uh, the hearings going on and you listen to the way this guy talks. These are the guys that were raised by revenge of the nerds, but watching the jocks and thinking they were the heroes. And I'm, I'm amazed that so much of that sort of cultural portrayal, we, we see that there were people that took it as I am going to be that for the rest of my life. I still run into that dude who walks into the room and thinks he's in night shift and is adorable. And it's horrifying. And so I think Michael Keaton playing this part, this is that moment where he takes that character and shows you sort of the rancid underside of it. Yeah, no, there's a scene in this movie. It's, it's, I think still some of the best 
uh, best film acting he's done. You know, he's great on the phone. He has a bunch of great phone yeah. scenes in the yeah. paper and, you know, and in some of the comedies where he, where, where he, he can be on the phone and he's doing his half of the conversation and that's all you need. There's a it's scene of acting skill. It's a very particular yeah. acting skill. You're right. Yeah, definitely. And there's a scene about halfway through where he escapes from the facility and he tries to go to his office to look for, for Coke and to look for money. And he can't find either. And he calls his his parents and tries to talk her into taking out a second mortgage on the house to loan him money that he owes. And it's an incredible one-sided scene. You never see or hear her. You just see him sinking further into desperation. And then at the end of the scene, he looks up and there's a cleaning woman in the office who has watched and heard clearly the entire thing. And the shame that just washes over him is it's, it's a real good scene. I, I love movies like that. We just talked about, uh, it goes up on Sunday, but uh, we just talked about uh, in the March episode, Harry and son, the Newman film. And it's, you know, it's an okay movie. It's fine. It's, you can see the things that I like about Newman as a filmmaker, and you can see all the things that were frustrating about as a filmmaker in the movie, but there's one scene. And every now and then when you see one of those movies and that one scene is so goddamn good, you really do just want to make people go. You're like, All right, just watch it for that, man. Just watch it and you'll see. You'll know when you get there. And yeah, it'll knock you flat. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I am fascinated by Glenn Gordon, Karen, by the fact that 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 guy came out swinging so hard and then on on film just couldn't really put it together. I, I went to two different test screenings of Wilder Napalm. Mm. And boy, you talk about a movie that that I saw two radically different cuts and it was clear both cuts. N- nobody at the helm. Like he did not know what movie he was making. And then you see something like Clean and Sober, which is so simple and so direct and and so honest and and unadorned like uh, his moonlighting stuff got more and more sort of self-aware and and winky winky and i think there's a danger in that kind of writing and this is very stripped down and very real and well observed i agree um okay so next movie on my list is another uh of the the 80s white guys of that ilk trying (laughs) trying his hand at something a little more serious uh, and that's from 1986, Gary Marshall's Nothing in Common, starring, Ooh, okay. starring Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. Uh, this is a movie that I mostly you know, harbor such affection for because it was in such, such regular rotation on HBO circa 1987, 1988. Um, but it's a really it's it's a really, I think, heartfelt, uh, intelligent, funny and moving uh, piece of work. I remember it being, and I, I, I think I trust my memory on this, that it was a little bit of a bait and switch, that the ads, the original trailers, uh, very much pushed it as a Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason father and son comedy. Look, they're, gonna, they're getting on each other's nerves. Because the premise of the movie is that his parents get a divorce as he's this like super successful yuppie ad man, and he basically has to like parent his parents. Yes. Um, and that would have been enough for a movie, honestly. Uh, and and the first half pretty much is that movie. And Gary Marshall at that point especially was perfectly capable of that kind of movie. And then it takes a turn and becomes something more serious in the second half. We find out that Jackie Gleason's dad is, is diabetic and hasn't been taking care of himself, that he's very sick, and that his son like actually really is going to have to take care of him. 
and also finds out some really sort of insidious things about how his father treated his mother. That's the best stuff in the movie. That has permanently screwed her up. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene in, where, where he goes to, to visit his mom. She's hanging out at the bar where he hangs out, hoping to find him because she just went on sort of her first date as a single woman and is uh, in tatters. Eva Marie Saint plays it. Uh, with all of the the sort of sensitivity that you expect from an Eva Marie Saint performance, it's it's a a really tough tough scene about the roles that men and women were expected to play at that time when you know when they were married and 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 when they met. And then there's a scene after it where where he goes where Tom Hanks goes to to his dad's apartment and lays into his dad for what he just found out. And it's uh, it's hard, and it's fierce, and it's nasty, and it's the kind of it, and it feels it's dramatic. It's well written, it's well played, but it also there's an authenticity to it. It feels like an actual the way family fights feel that very specific intensity when you're really unloading on a parent who has upset you for decades. It was a awakening for me regarding Jackie Gleason. Because I think I knew him only from um, Smoking the Bandit, really. Uh, and, you know, that was sacred text in my house that summer. I There were two movies. I internalized Star Wars. My dad kept taking us back to see Smoking the Bandit. So by the end of the summer, I knew both films inside out, which has always led to some very weird echoes in my head. But <laughs> Gleason in particular, like that became what I knew of Gleason. And so, yeah, I knew his comic timing was impeccable. But... Yeah, nothing in common was really for me the uh, the alert that oh no he's something else. And this was now this was for me one of the very first films I ever reviewed in front of other people. Um, I was in high school, and this was when Scott Swan, my writing partner for many many years, he and I had just recently met. And our school had a uh, television production studio that they had put in and closed circuit to every room. So when we got there, they weren't using it. We we pitched a morning show. We got put together in a class, and our teacher wanted us to do one five-minute video for the year. Three weeks in, Scott and I were pitching them a morning show. Like, you should use your equipment, and we should do live stuff. And we did for three years. And so one of the regular features was we did a movie review that started out as a supposedly straight take on Siskel and Ebert with us just talking, but nobody wants to watch two 16-year-olds give their, nobody, including us, we realized very quickly it was awful, and we turned it into kung fu fighting over our disagreements and ridiculous slapstick humor, and it was rarely serious, but we would wedge a movie review in there somewhere, and the week we did Nothing in Common, I remember fighting with our teacher about it, because we reviewed it, and we both really liked it, and I remember saying Tom Hanks is more than we think he is. Like there's a real actor in there. And I, I got to give Tom Hanks, he stands toe to toe with Jackie Gleason and with even Marie Saint. And this is really good. I think this is terrific. And Gary Marshall does a nice job. And I remember as we were editing it, our teacher standing behind me going, happy days, Gary Marshall. And you're telling me that Tom, man with one red shoe, Tom Hanks, this guy, the, the night shit, he, he could not stop making fun of us. For what we said this movie was. And we were like, no, I swear to God, Tom Hanks is good. You're going to see. You're going to believe. So I really, it was an early case of digging my heels in and getting teased about it. And I've always remembered 
the few years down the road, seeing him after Big had come out and saying, so uh, Tom Hanks, uh, still a still joke, still just bosom buddies, Tom Hanks. Is that what you think? Still? Huh? <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. And Gary Marshall, I, I, I think his 80s films are interesting and strong. I think Flamingo Kid is a very interesting film. I think Nothing in Common is a very interesting film. I think when Gary Marshall was starting to make movies, I think he made them with a lot more heart. I think he turned into a guy that was more sitcom-y, weirdly. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think maybe he it's a really simple explanation, but I think maybe he was just trying really hard to make the transition and to be an honest to goodness filmmaker at the beginning. And then right around the time he did Pretty Woman, he made more money than he'd ever need again. So he just sort of went on autopilot after that. That's my best guess. Well, and I wonder how personal Flamingo Kid is. Like, I wonder how much how much is memory driven. And, you know, I think for a lot of filmmakers, like a lot of bands, they get that first one stored up. Yeah. And then the second one is, oh, shit, I got to do it again. <laughs> so, OK. Yeah, I agreed. Um, OK, next up on my list, and I think this is the first one you guys have talked about. So uh, for, forgive me if you end up uh, repeating yourself oh, that's okay. um, from 1982. Starring one of my favorite leading men of the 70s and 80s, uh, Walter Matthau in Hopscotch. Oh, nice. Now, I, I hesitated to put it on the list because it's, it is in the Criterion collection. So I didn't know if, it's, if that renders it immediate, immediately canonical or not. I don't think so. And especially, I think Ronald Neem is not a name that, that everybody knows at this point. And I think Hopscotch, even for Mathau fans, Hopscotch has always been considered sort of a minor pleasure. But I'm with you after rewatching it. I think it's something else. I, I think there's a lot going on. And I love that this guy who has this face like a shoe was a movie star and a credible romantic lead and a cool son of a bitch. And in stuff like Charlie Varick, even occasionally scary and... How? How? What is the magic trick of Walter Matthau? I will. And I adore him. Yeah. One of the things I really love about Hopscotch is that I am. It feels like the only movie that really fused the two Walter Matthaus, if you will, because he has that incredible run of those three serious. I mean, he has funny moments in them, but three serious crime pictures in the mid 70s. You know, Pelham 123, Charlie Varick. Laughing Policeman, all oh, come out, yes. bang, 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 one right after the other. And really, you know, he started out as a, as a serious actor. He plays heavies and things like, you know, charade and facing the crowd. And he, but then, you know, The Odd Couple and, and the other Neil Simon films really sort of firmed him up as a comic leading man. And so those three films in the 70s really felt to me like a conscious decision, an actor saying, no, wait a minute, I'm not the funny guy necessarily, and, and, yeah. and, sh- and sort of strutting his stuff in those films, all of which are great, all of which he's great in. Then after he's sort of proven himself, then he goes back to stuff like California Suite and, you know, the, the sort of traditional Walter Matthau funny guy stuff. Bad news bears. That, that, and see, that for me, that was my entry point into Matthau. So the the gradual realization that the other Mathows existed, what was was what was so exciting. I wasn't ready when I saw Hopscotch Young. Hopscotch is a grown up pleasure. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a it's a James Bond movie where nobody fires a gun. Yeah, 
it's it's but it it really it fuses his the notion of him as sort of a credible man of action really with the comic persona that he the 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 sort of curmudgeon comic persona that he had so finely tuned um it's it's cleverly plotted it's really well paced it has a terrific villain in Ned Beatty as just not even like, you know, a mustache twirling bad guy, just that asshole you work for. I, and I, <laughs> there, are, there are a few pleasures greater in a movie than when you watch somebody tweak an asshole like that and really effectively. And what's beautiful is Matthau that's all he wants to do in this movie. This movie is about a guy who just realizes, yeah, I've had enough. I'm just going to spend the next six months of my life fucking this dude, fucking him every day. I'm going to make his life from when he wakes up to when he goes to sleep fucking terrible. And it's going to be delightful. And to, to be able to do it the way he does it is, is what is so, so enjoyable and so low key smart about the film. I, I went back and read reviews for it. And I was amazed at how many critics, like working critics at the time. I just don't, I think it just bounced right off them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that element that you're talking about is great. The other thing that I really love in it is Sam Waterston as the guy who's, <laughs> who still works for Ned Beatty, but still loves Walter Matthau and is sort of along for the ride as <laughs> Ned Beatty's being humiliated and yeah. is clearly enjoying it. The scene where they're outside the country house, the way that Sam Waterston says, they're shooting up your house, is one of my favorite line readings from maybe the decade. It's such a great, the, the, the twist of plotting that, that makes that scene happen and the yep. way that Sam Waterston responds to it is mwah. my other favorite memory about this movie. And this is a stupid personal thing, but, but the first time I ever saw it, <clears throat> my dad was not like, he wasn't like a big time, you know, like movie, movie guy, the way that your dad was, but he was a young father. I, I, you know, I was a teen pregnancy. Was, my folks were 17 when I was born. He was a single dad. He didn't really know what he was doing. And we did, he did like, like to watch movies. And so I, we watched a lot of stuff together and he introduced me to a lot of things that I, that I ended up really digging. He had seen this, uh, theatrically when it came out, he taped it when it aired on NBC um, and edited for television, but it was one of those like Ned Beatty uses some really colorful vulgarity. And it was, <laughs> it was one of those like kind of diehard big Lebowski, like inventive, um, substitution audio tracks. Uh, so the, the first, you know, 30 times literally, cause I loved it when I was a kid, the first 30 times I watched this movie, it was with the cleaned up audio. Oh, that's awesome. So one of my favorite criterion collection uh extras of all time is the fact that on the criterion dvd and blu-ray of hopscotch they have as an alternate audio track that network television profanity free i did not real. i did not know that well i i had an old hopscotch i will now go pick up the new one because i didn't know that and i'm obsessed with those there's very few of them that are available and and still in circulate out of the great ones, I really want to track down the do the right thing. Oh wow! Oh god, the Scarface, both of which I watched when they aired originally, jaw on the floor at what they had to do at the acrobatics of it. But but there are movies that I encountered the the same way. The first time 
either through the TV cut or this is another thing that is unique to people sort of from our era where I couldn't go see an R-rated movie. So my first encounter with it was the Mad Magazine parody. Oh, yeah. And then you finally see the movie and you realize, shit, they pretty much got it all in there. I pretty much saw the movie when I <laughs> when I read that thing. Um, that was something that I just I I can't even explain to people who who never had that happen. But it's a really weird way to experience a piece of art. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I have a real affection for that cleaned up version of Hopscotch. I, I I put it I put that one on occasionally. I I will pick it up now specifically because you brought it up. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, next on the list, uh, another one. Uh, th- it really does. A lot of these, because of the age that I was, I end up being stories about how they were introduced to me by uh, by a, a wise grown up um, from 1986. Um, my stepdad, uh, who I mentioned before, was a huge Talking Heads fan. He loved Ooh. Talking Heads. They were his his favorite band. Um and he played some for me, and I didn't really understand it, but I liked the way it sounded and so forth. And so, you know, when we did video night, he never, he was not a movie guy at all. He never had a request. He, never, he just sort of went along with whatever me and my mom wanted to get. But one week he said, hey, can we pick up this uh, Talking Heads movie? It's called True Stories. And I said, sure. So we asked when we got to the video store and they gave us the one copy that they had of True Stories and we took it home. Now, I'm 10 or 11 at this time and I've never really seen an independent film. I'd never really seen a semi-experimental film. And True Stories knocked my socks off. Wow. Wow, what a great age to see it, man. I'm... I'm a little jealous of you because that's it's it's a really sweet film deep down and 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 very open to the idea of, you know, everybody's kind of special and cool and small towns are amazing. There's lots of little cool corners of America. That's a it's such a sweet film to let in as a kid. And I wouldn't have thought to show it to someone that young. But you saying that I. I bet it was a pretty wonderful experience. It was really sort of a formative moment, you know, and and the, because it has such a singular vision, it's so sort of it, it, it just has such a unique way of looking at the world and at looking at that small town. And I'm from the Midwest. I knew towns kind of like that. Um, and one of the things that has always that I've always loved about it when I, and I've revisited it every couple of years the thing that I that really strikes me about the entire movie, but especially the big um, town talent show at the <laughs> at the end. Yeah, you know there are silly things in that movie, and there are silly things in that talent show. There are you know uh, lassoers and auctioneers and corny songs and the whole nine yards. There is never a nanosecond in that movie where the New York rock star slash performance artist is sneering at these people. No. Is condescending to them in any way. He loves everything that they're doing. It's so open and curious. And in a weird way, I almost think, I think it's one of the sort of, one of the most American movies in that it's, that there's, this, it, there's such a democracy to the way it looks at these people. Like everyone's invited. 
you know, the, the, the wonderful scene at the care, what, what wasn't really a karaoke bar. We didn't really have them quite yet, but the scene where there's sort of at this little nightclub and every, there's a, a, almost everyone in town gets up and lip syncs a line to wild, wild life by talking heads. Everyone's invited up on that stage and everyone comes up and sings a line or two. Uh, of all shapes and sizes and colors. And it's just beautiful. It's just such a, it's, it's, it's a little bit idealized, but it's just so warm and it's so inviting. And also was the first thing I ever saw John Goodman in. Um, and, and man, I gotta tell you that that is such a beautiful piece of work from him. He is Lewis is the name of his character in that movie and Lewis fine, the teddy bear. And he is just this guy with this giant heart who is ready. He's just ready. He just wants to be loved. And as a, and Goodman, you know, if, as you, you go through it, the way we're doing it right now, chronologically, Goodman starts popping up all over the place and he's, and especially early on, Goodman was a thug. He was cast because he was big. He was cast because he was a little intimidating. And, yeah, it was here. It was this year with this and raising Arizona that all of a sudden this guy became one of the most interesting people in film to me. And and I love raising Arizona, but it was the one two punch. It was Lewis as well, man. Yeah. I have such a clear memory of like seeing this movie whenever it came out on video in like 87. And then like a year later was when he got cast on Roseanne. And my mom and I like tuning into the first episode, like that's the guy from true store. That's Lewis fine. The teddy bear. We were so, we were so excited for him that he got that gig. Um, and ever since then, I've just felt this affection for him. I just love everything that he does, but he's, it's a wonderful performance. It's a sweet performance. And he, he has a really lovely singing voice. He has this very pleasant baritone. He sings people like us. It's one of those songs that sort of, where a character is singing things they could never say. Uh, And it's just lovely. It's just a really, really, it's a terrific movie. And I'm so glad that it's, that it's coming out on criteria and so more people will see it because I think it's the, the most recent release was like maybe a full screen DVD of it or something. Oh yeah. It's been a while. I think um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Stephen Tobolowsky is one of the screenwriters of the film and, uh, and had met, uh, David Byrne through Jonathan Demi and Beth Henley, who's the other writer of this film, a terrific playwright and absolutely terrific dialogue writer. Just a, she's a phenomenal ear. So th- if you know Tobolowski's monologue work, if you know him as a performer and if you know Beth Henley's work and if you know Jonathan and if you know David Byrne's music and you think about those three people sitting in a room talking about people this is why the the word hipster bugs me, and this is why sometimes when I I see the the you know talking heads dismissed as sort of hipster art or man, it drives me crazy because there is a David Byrne. I think from the very beginning of his career has been about um, not collecting humanity or or poaching culture, but about the idea that the more culture he is exposed to, the better person he is. And his entire career feels like him inviting you to just follow him as he learns about it. Not that he's the expert, but that he wants to celebrate it and figure it out. And and I think that comes out in the way this movie was put together and the way the movie plays. And you're right. That Wild Wildlife video was so 
important on MTV in terms of setting a tone for this movie. And yet, as big as that video was, the movie just, you know, it never got a chance to really connect. It never got a major release. And you say that you took them the one copy the store had. That was how you knew that movies were relatively obscure. If the store got one copy. Right. Okay. At least it got the one, you know, and and a lot of times you wouldn't get the one and you'd have to find the one store in your town that had that one copy of that one film, whether it's this one or Penn and Teller get killed or, you know, there's there's movies that just were almost mythical. And in the home video era, you really had to go looking for that store that would order that would take a chance and order the one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, you know, 1986. It was a Warner Brothers picture. They didn't know how the hell to release that movie. They had no No. idea what to do with that movie. No. And they'd had, you know, I think they made some money off of uh, 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 Stop Making Sense. I think that was that put some coin in someone's pocket. And so they said, well, okay. I mean, David Byrne kind of has some sense of what he's doing and videos. This is what we're starting to talk about this sort of rise of MTV and how the influence is starting to really be felt by 84 by 86. The notion of an MTV movie, a movie that you're selling primarily through MTV didn't seem wildly crazy. It just never really worked. It, It was, it was a myth. It was one of those things that, Yes, there were movies that were huge hits that also had monster videos. I don't believe any movie worked only because there was an MTV video. Right. Okay. Next up on uh, the big 80s faves list. All right. We're going to do two more. So I want you to pick the, the two that you're really like feeling great about. All right. Here we go. Uh, this one, not really a, a critical hit at the time. I don't know how much goodwill anyone else has for it, but I will always <laughs> have a special place in my heart for, uh, from 1985, Stephen King's Cat's Eye, which I find to be a really... Sh- I find Stephen King, as many smarter people than I have said, is uh, was a hard... It was hard work to, to, to adapt. It was hard work to translate properly. The books were so big and they had so much in them and you were bound to lose things in the translation and potentially things that made them great. Uh, but then on the other hand, when people tried to stretch the short stories into features, those were too thin and you ended up with things like Children of the Corn. Cat's Eye, I think, found the right approach to adapting Stephen King because it took two Stephen King uh, short stories from Night Shift. He wrote a new third uh, short story as well, and it's a three-part, it's an anthology movie that tells three stories that have only the connection of this uh, cat um, that's sort of a minor character in all three of them. This, credit were due, uh, I was nine years old, and it was a PG-13, and I was allowed to see it in the theater, so it was very exciting for me. Um, Drew Barrymore is one year older than me and I'd harbored a crush since E.T. So it was a very Mm -hmm. big deal to see a Drew Barrymore movie. Um, but there is stuff in cat's eye. There are images and, and scare moments in this movie that I still think of fairly regularly. Um, everyone has, as with any anthology, everyone has their favorite segment. Um, my choice is the middle one, which is based on King's the ledge in which, uh, Robert Hayes plays a guy who's been, uh, stepping out with a, Gosh, I guess kind of a Trump figure, uh, his with his wife, and the uh, you know wealthy uh, real estate uh, figure, 
and he offers him a bet. He says uh, they're up in his penthouse and there's a one inch ledge around the entire building. And he says, if you can walk around this entire uh, ledge, then you can take my wife and this nest egg to start with. And if you can't make it, well, I guess you're out of our lives. And it is a crackerjack piece of short form suspense tension filmmaking. Um, the other two segments are pretty good too. And, and cases can be made that they're the best one, but that's the one I, I tend to think of a lot as someone who is deathly afraid of heights. I agree with you. I think it's a, uh, I think it is a cool anthology. I think that it, the wraparound to me is the least interesting part of it. It's a little weird. Um, but I think quitters incorporated is a terrific adaptation. I think the ledge really works and I, I like the approach. I do. I think the, Notion that Creepshow works so well, Cat's Eye works so well, makes a strong case that there should have been more compilations. There should have been more King anthologies. Um, you know, for me, the short story that messed me up from him, I, there was a period of about four years, five years in the 80s where I could not sleep with a closet door open mm. because of the boogeyman. That short story messed me up when I read it because I was, I think, nine, ten. Oh, that's too young to read that, Drew. <laughs> wrong. Wrong. It was wrong. And, oh, my God, it did a number on me. So his, his shorts, and that's what I love, is his shorts, I, I think his voice has always been his greatest tool. Stephen King is one of our greatest storytellers who doesn't always tell the best stories. And that's his, that's just him. That's one of the things that makes him who he is, is he can talk past the ending of a story by 400 pages. He can, uh, he, you know, he can uh, miss his own theme and, and, and not stick the landing, but it, it, the endings are to me where he has his biggest problems. So when you, when you're dealing with the shorts, he always has his punch loaded right up front. And it's why something like the jaunt, if that had been in an anthology film like cat's eye Two. I think the jaunt would be one of those things that people talk about 25 years later and dude, the ending of that thing where the guy comes out and he's older. Oh my God. Do you remember that? Yeah. There's, he knew how to punch at the end of his shorts. Yeah. Well, he's telling campfire stories in those, yeah. you know, they're, 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 they're stripped down their, their basic information and they're delivered with, with a real punch. Um, and that's what I think the best parts of cat's eye do as well. I, I really agree. We're, we just did uh, Children of the Corn, and yeah, it's the moment where he really starts to stumble at the box office because the adaptations start to get looser and not quite, uh, not quite as focused, and yeah, and the filmmakers start to get lesser, and it's a big jump down from De Palma and Cronenberg and Carpenter to the dude that made Children of the Corn, and yeah, man, it really starts to get tough. So. Cat's eye is a nice like spike right in the middle of this. Yep. 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 Uh, and then my, my final selection for this evening, uh, perhaps my most controversial, uh, from that same summer of 1985. So, you know, nine, 10 year old, the lens of nostalgia, et cetera, et cetera. But I find myself more and more, even after writing a book about him, uh, going to bat for Richard Pryor and Brewster's millions. And let me tell you why. Interesting, because I and here's by coincidence, even though we haven't gotten 85, I did rewatch it not terribly long ago. So I'm very excited to have the talk. Here's the thing about Brewster's Millions that 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 
I mean, I liked it when I saw it because it was, I was nine and it was an eighties comedy and it was a PG, which was great. I could go see it. Um, and you know, I didn't know from Richard Pryor really at that point. I had seen the toy eh, and Superman three, huh? Um, but, but you know, none, none of really the good stuff yet. So it was kind of an entry point for me with him. He's funny in it. Him and John Candy are good together. Um, you know, it's, it's a, let's spend a lot of money movie. There's, there are clever moments in it. In retrospect, I now look at that as being a quintessential eighties movie in that in so many of these films and in so much of the era that the films were capturing, the topic really was conspicuous consumption. It was a greed decade. It was a flash decade. It was about, look how well I'm doing and look, look at all of the things that I have. The thing that I love about Brewster's Millions is that it comes right in the middle of that decade and it makes that subtext text. This is a movie that is ex- where, the, where the explicit subject is how much money can I spend and how carelessly can I do it? Um, it's a well-worn story. If you don't know, it's been remade a zillion times. Yeah. Dates back to like the teens or 20s, I think. Um, but the story is that, you know, a sort of a, a loser is left a, a, a sum of money by a, a wealthy relative he was not aware of. It, it left an exorbitant amount of money under the condition that he can spend a smaller but still considerable amount of money in 30 days and have no assets to show for it. So uh, in this film, inflation being whatever it was at that moment, the he Ray Walston, who appears only via an old uh, uh, film uh, to explain the conditions of the inheritance, leaves him $300 million if he can spend $30 million in 30 days with no assets. Right. Um, and they come up with some legitimately clever ways for him to do it. Uh, the thing with the postage stamp is something I still think of and, and smile a bit. Um, the, uh, he brings, you know, the Richard Pryor is playing the character as a, a, a minor league pitcher, uh, sort of on the downslope of a career that didn't happen. So there's a little bit of pathos there that I like where he kind of tries to, to use some of the money to make a go of it as, as a baseball player and realizes kind of for good that he doesn't have what it takes. Uh, John Candy is, is, uh, you know, very force of nature, John Candy performance as his, his best buddy, the sidekick, um, Walter Hill, not really a comedy director, but he does his best and he stages. <laughs> That's the weirdest part of the whole film for me that you, that right there, it's a Walter Hill movie. Here's my theory. Uh, I, I, my, uh, what I came to realize as I was rewatching and researching Brewster's millions was this, you know, Richard had a rough eighties, um, he had some hits, but he wasn't, you know, no one was him, himself included was certain that he was doing his best work at the time. And Eddie Murphy was nipping on his heels. Um, everyone, you know, the, the first thing sort of everyone said about, you know, about Eddie Murphy was he's the new Richard Pryor and Richard Pryor is like, wait a minute, I'm still here. Yeah. Brewster's millions is a fairly transparent attempt to remake trading places. Uh, it has the same screenwriters it has the same sort of villainous two old white guys. Um, uh, it's again about you know a, a poor guy, poor black guy who suddenly has a whole lot of money. And I really legitimately think that that whoever was in charge of of putting the team together 
Uh, John Landis wasn't available, and they said, well, hell, Walter Hill directed Eddie in 48 hours. Let's bring in Walter Hill. That's my theory. It's based on nothing but pure conjecture. I just, there, if that, if you heard a sound just now, it was the thunderclap of realization. <laughs> that's not a bad, that's kind of like when I piece together that I truly in my heart believe that both Robert De Niro and Harrison Ford were so fucking hurt by the success of Big that... De Niro went on to do Awakening so he could play that exact same character and Ford did re- regarding Henry so he could play the character. Neither of them did it right, but they just went, they were like, oh, I should have done it. Oh, I think that happens sometimes. And yeah, trading places that it's a terrific model that I don't, I would never have connected, but I think, I think you could really make that case. I, Here's what I like about you bringing this one up, Jason, because I'm not I'm not the hugest fan of the film, but you and I share an affinity for Richard, for Richard Pryor. Um, You quite literally wrote a book about Richard, and I have I've talked about Richard. I've written about Richard. I am, am both horrified by his film career and fascinated by it. And I think it is a failure on Hollywood's part to understand exactly how to handle this incandescent talent, this fury that was part of Richard that was scary to them. This is another one of those comedies where they they want Richard to be safe and approachable. They want Richard to be uh, the audience surrogate. I think Richard has very real anger that makes him a hard audience surrogate sometimes because we don't all have the same fury as Richard. We don't all carry around the same things Richard does. And um, I I like that in this one, I buy the sweetness of Monty Brewster. I buy, and a part of that is because he and John Candy really connect. And that didn't always happen with his co-stars. I think Candy does a really good job of calling him on his shit in this movie, which I, I wish there were guys who had been that for prior, like for real guys whose whole job was to call him on his shit. Because I think, Candy really sells the notion that a good friend would call Monty on it and would not let him be the weakest versions of Monty that we see in this movie. And I I do like that Pryor plays Pryor is very good at playing guys who when they stumble, they really stumble. They have real moral failings. And Pryor was never afraid of letting his characters show their weakest nature, where I think a lot of guys in the 80s were. I think there's that movie star thing that kicks in where you want to make sure your characters never really too weak. And I don't think Richard protected much about himself. So I, it's interesting. There's all sorts of stuff in Brewster's millions that I like. I don't know that I think the, the overall comedy for me is as funny as I wish it were, but I do think that watching it, it is a more consistent and honest Richard performance than most of the comedies he made around it. And, you know, when you wince at the mention of the toy or you wince at Superman three, those movies caused me pain. Those movies hurt me. I, I am frustrated that Superman three is a thing that is real. I used to have it on this, the list with stuff like moving where, or critical no, condition. And I, no. and no, I don't think it's that at all. And I, I apologize for the, the times that I've lumped it in with them because I do, I think there's more going on and, it's the little stuff. It's the supporting performances. It is the fact that Walter Hill, 
understands that it is a 30s film at heart and that that class thing that that is going on is a thing that really hadn't happened in film since the 30s. That was the last time that we had the conversation about class. And I I think the 80s tried to have it and and money won in the 30s. The human the humanity won. And in the 80s, the, the money won and said, shut up. Uh, we'd really rather just watch movies about conspicuous consumption. Right. And like I say, you know, part of the reason, too, that I that I have such affection for it and fascinated by it is is because of the subtext, not just of this movie. But I think it's it's also really interesting that, you know, in in later years, Pryor was unapologetic and openly admitted that a lot of the decisions he made and a lot of the bad movies he made in the 80s were fueled by paychecks were fueled by how much money he needed and how much money he was being paid for them. So looked at that way. I think it's also really interesting that the three films that we're talking about here, the toy Superman three Brewster's millions are all also movies that are all about making money and where he got paid massive, massive movie star defining paychecks for the era. Yeah. He got paid huge amounts of money to play characters who are doing things for huge amounts of money. Fascinating. Fascinating. I, 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 and I, let me just ask you real quick, cause I, I, I don't know that we've ever spoken directly about this movie. I have not rewatched it. I just recently reacquired it and, uh, am looking forward to watching it when it's time. But, um, it's been many, many years since I've seen Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. And I'm fascinated by the tension between the truth of Richard and what he's willing to show us in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have you know that uh, on the sort of backup list, depending on how far, how much time we had and how quickly we moved through these, Jojo Dancer was a little further down on this list. Yeah, I figured because it's one that's worth a conversation and definitely <sighs> worth a conversation. I mean, I'll tell you just very briefly that it's a film that he does soften some things in a way that that uh, that flatters himself. Um, and if he were really wanting to make the sort of stark, naked, all that jazz style self-confession that I think he he fancied it to be, uh, it needed to go through a couple more drafts to varnish that stuff, uh, to, to scrub that stuff off. But the last 20 minutes of, of or I guess it's not because there's the, the sort of stand-up epilogue, but the climax of Jojo Dancer, the sequence that is the run-up to and the dramatization of the quote-unquote accident. Yeah, yeah. I find every time I watch that movie, I find devastating. I, f- I can't wait. I really can't wait to watch it again. I can't wait because it, it really is to me revealing in the moments that it isn't revealing. Mm-hmm. It's still Richard telling you about himself. The things he guards are just as much of a tell. And oh yeah, I I, I do. I love him so much, and I I. It's one of the reasons that his film legacy confounds me. And and yeah, it is endlessly interesting because you you know that this monster artist that is Richard Pryor, this this ferocious intelligence and these the character voices that he carries around. All of that is something that I think we could have gotten so much more out of on film. And so the places where he gets closer, the places where he bumps up against it or where filmmakers realized sort of the asset that he was, those moments are so electrifying. 
Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, he had such a gift and he had, and he was capable of so much and it really was only captured like three or four times, mm-hmm. um, which is a terrible batting average for as many films as he made. Um, and I think part of it was, was, you know, uh, an industry that didn't know what to do with him, filmmakers that didn't know how to harness that. Also, you know, again, like I say, he was very honest about the fact that also he, a lot of times was picking scripts for the wrong reasons, yeah. you know? Um, some of the movies that he almost made are are just as as upsetting to me as as the bad ones that he did. <laughs> you know, I when I when I read about how close he came to making the Charlie Parker story, uh, it's upsetting. You know, and I like I like Bird. I think Bird's a, a fine film, and I think Forrest Whitaker's terrific in it. Um, but to 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 see him fuse that character with sort of his own pain and addiction. I think all you got to think about is lady plays the blues. And then you start to go, Oh shit. Really? Really? Yeah. Big time. Uh, Okay. All right. Um, Well, man, I, I loved having you on Jason. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. And uh, I know you had a busy day. No, I really appreciate you having me on. And, and like I've told you, I, I really love the podcast. I love what you guys are doing. And it's just, just a pleasure to, to get to, to hopefully send a couple of people towards a couple of these flicks. Absolutely. I'm, and I am delighted. Good lineup. Uh, I am beaming at the true stories reference. Um, that is not one that we've talked about much yet. And, um, I certainly hope that it is one that people are aware of. And I'm excited that criterion is going to do it. And yeah, I think it's moment is coming. So, um, all right, uh, Jason, thank you so much. We will talk soon. And uh, where can people find you online? Where can people find your uh, Twitter? And uh, what do you have coming next? And where can they get it? Gotcha. My, uh, you can find me online on Twitter at Jason-Bailey. And that's the word dash is spelled out. So that's all one word, Jason-Bailey. That's me. Links to all my stuff are on there. You can read me at FlavorWire and occasionally at the watching vertical of the New York Times. Um, and I'm on Amazon. I have four books, one about Pulp Fiction, one about Woody Allen, one about the aforementioned Richard Pryor. And the most recent is about uh, the subset of 70s movies that were about private detectives. I hear there's a real jerk that contributed to that Pulp Fiction book. Yeah, I know. We had a lot of trouble with uh, one contributor in particular. Uh it's like, come on, can you send some clean copy? I these are these aren't even sentences that make sense. I know. I, I like to I like to fax ham. I, that's all I can say. <laughs> no, Drew wrote a really lovely uh, guest essay for us in the the Pulp Fiction book, which uh, which is a pretty nice little piece of work uh, all in all. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's the books, and then the New York book will be out in a couple of years. I'll I'll remind you, sir. Thanks, uh, and for those of you uh, who are regular listeners, uh, you know you can find us every week uh, during every other week for the regular episodes. We will have more great guests coming for you here on the Patreon, and uh, thank you as always for listening. <laughs> 